this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for our incredible song leaders leading us this morning in singing. I know I was so moved by uh, a number of the songs that they sang, so let's give them a huge hand. Thank you so much. Uh, as well, let's make sure that we give it up for Deshara and Javier for their incredible communion and contribution. You know, I love Deshara, and it was fun. At the end of her communion, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, a graph came out of her journal. And I go, it would be like Deshara to graph out her relationship with God. And uh, sometimes we can have like a more mathematical mind about things. And, and then the, the challenge is to become more heartsy and to let God into your heart and into your life. Amen. Uh, thank you so much, Javier. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I almost just, I could have said, hey, you know what, let's just end the church service after Javier's sharing. Or I could have just said, hey, Javier, just keep going. You got the sermon today, and it would have been awesome. Amen. Thank you so much, my brother. You know, I, I, love, I love that song, I'm Building Me a Home. And that's the title of our lesson this morning, I'm Building Me a Home. Turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This earthly house is going to soon decay. But my soul's got to have some place to stay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 5, Paul says, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow, amen? So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are God's co-workers, in his service, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Some translations say an expert builder. And someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. You know, right here, Paul was talking to the Corinthian church about building the Corinthian church. And he goes, you know, I, I planted the seed, meaning I planted the church. I was the one that started the church there in Corinth. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, amen? amen? But then Apollos came and took over the church. And so I planted the church, Apollos watered it, and we're the ones making it grow, right? No, he goes, although I planted the church, and although Apollos watered the church, ultimately it's God who makes things grow. Now, that being said, would God make it grow if Apollos didn't plant, and if, uh, or excuse me, if Paul didn't plant, and Apollos didn't water? No, he wouldn't. And so he goes, as disciples, we are the co-workers of God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. You see, as disciples, we don't come to church. We are the church. You with me on that? We, we are God's building as people. I, I know that many of us grew up and we were used to going to cathedral-like buildings with stained glass windows and crosses of Jesus everywhere, etc. And we think that that is the church. I, I know for myself, 
There was a, a little uh, nursery rhyme song that we used to learn in, in, in um, Sunday school. And you kind of put your hands together and you go, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and there's all the people. You may be right there. But here's the thing. These are the church. This is the church. It's not the building. It's the people. You with me on that? But not only is the church the building, the church is also the builder. In fact, the history of God's people is full of builders. Noah built an ark. Moses built the tabernacle. Solomon built the temple. Nehemiah built a wall. Jesus built a movement. And if you're a part of Jesus' movement, you too must be a builder building yourself a home. Not a home here on earth, but a home in heaven. You with me on that? You know, this morning, I want to look at some things that Satan does to stop you from building God's church. And we're going to look at a story in particular during a time of great building. Turn your Bible to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to bank on your knowledge of biblical history right here to some degree. Because I, I know that a lot of us have studied out the kingdom of God. And we're familiar with these dates like when Israel was at the peak of its glory. It was 1,000 B.C., and who was king? David was king. Well, later on, amen, Nero, you're catching up, bro. You'll get it at some point. You've been a disciple for four years, another four years, and maybe, well, you know, we'll get there. <clears throat> a thousand B.C., David was king, but after David's kingship, when he really propelled Israel to glory, he handed his kingdom over to Solomon in roughly around 950 B.C., Solomon then led Israel through a time of great peace. They had a, a lot given to them. They were very blessed by God. But then after Solomon, because of David's sin, uh, Israel divided. Solomon's son Rehoboam got the kingdom stripped from him by Jeroboam. And so therefore Israel split into two main sections. There were the upper northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel. And then there were the southern two tribes, the two tribes of Judah. And so from that point forward, there's a great decline in Israel's power and glory. In fact, in 722 B.C., because of their sin, God allowed the Assyrians to come in and wipe out all of northern Israel. And so from that point on in the history books, northern Israel ceased to exist. It no longer existed in history. It was just the two tribes of Judah. But later, because of Judah's sin... And because they did not repent after the Assyrian exile, God allowed them to go into exile into Babylon in 606 B.C. And who was the king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. It's at this time that Jeremiah prophecies that God would allow them to stay in Babylon for 70 years until their hearts returned fully to the Lord. And so 70 years from 606 B.C., is 536 B.C. And so we find these words right here in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's 530, or 536 B.C., in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. 
The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. When the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and of the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Is that cranking right there? And so through God working in this whole situation, 70 years from the time they went into exile, in 536 B.C., God allows the, uh, King Cyrus to come over to uh, Babylon and to take over the kingship of Babylon. And, and somehow God moves in his heart to release God's people back into Jerusalem to build the temple of the Lord. Now notice right here in verse 1 and verse 5 that the Bible says God moved the heart of Cyrus and God moved the heart of the builders. You see, before you can build for the Lord, God has to move in your heart. Now here's the thing. A lot of us go, well, I really hope that happens sometime soon. I really hope that God moves my heart so that I will want to go and build for the Lord. In some ways, we can kind of sit around and wait for God to move our hearts. And sometimes we even say things like, man, I don't really want to, but I really want to want to. You ever say that? Like, I don't really want to do it, but I, I really want to want to do it. And essentially what you're saying is you hope that God changes your heart for you so that you have the motivation, the inspiration, and the enthusiasm that you need to fulfill God's commands and word. But go back to Jeremiah 29, verse 11. You have to turn there. The Bible says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations. And places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Well, what's the point right here? Yes, God can move your heart, absolutely. But he can only move your heart when you decide to give him your whole heart. If you don't decide to give God your whole heart, then God is not going to move your heart. And so right here, it's when the people return to the Lord with all their heart, God then moves and now we have builders going back to build the temple of the Lord. You know, I really want to second what Javier shared in his contribution. Some of us are studying the Bible right now, and we're in that place. I don't really want to, but I really want to want to. Amen. you got to give God your whole heart. And I promise when you decide to be wholehearted, God will then move your heart and give you all the motivation you need to follow him. Amen. You know, the first thing that stops the building is discouragement. Let's go to Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. You guys with me here this morning? <clears throat> I had to give you a little bit of historical background. In verse 1, it says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, 
and his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord throughout the foundation, or though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. I mean, this is awesome. Here they come into Jerusalem, and first thing they do is they construct the altar to sacrifice to the Lord. Even before they got started on the actual temple. Why would they start with the altar before the temple? Because sacrifice always precedes success. And they understood that before we get started on the temple, we got to build the sacrificial altar so that we can sacrifice the Lord so that he can bless the work of the temple. You with me here? You know, next Sunday is our five times special missions milestone on the way to our larger 20 times special missions goal. And let's be real. Special missions is always a challenge, is it not? Uh, I mean, we look at our finances, we look at the goal, and we go, oh, my gosh. How am I going to do this? And, and it's always incredible to me because God owns all the silver and the gold in the world. God, God could absolutely snap his fingers and give the church everything it needs to do everything that we are desiring to do for the Lord. For sure, it's not a challenge for God to do that. But the question is, why doesn't God do that? And I think it's because all cultures have their cultural sins. For some cultures, their, their cultural sin is laziness. For some cultures, their, their cultural sin is greed, like here in Canada. It's that we, we desire such comfortable, greedy lifestyles that I believe that God creates a need to test our hearts. To, to see if we're really willing to sacrifice it all for him and put our faith in God and not our money. And it's only when you choose to sacrifice that God can allow there to be success. Let's keep going to verse, verse 8. In the second month of the second year after the arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, Kedmiel and his sons, descendants of Hadavai, and the sons of Hinnadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests... And Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds uh, between the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made such a loud noise. And the sound was heard from very far away. You know, here we find that the builders, after they start building the temple, finish laying the foundation of the temple. I mean, at this point, they haven't even started on the walls. And already, all the song leaders took their place, and they just started singing, and the people were just so fired up. 
Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And everybody, his love. There you go. That's exactly what happened right there at the temple. They were just so fired up that they had been given the privilege to come back to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord. But you know, not everybody was fired up. There were some of the younger people that were like, wow, we've never seen a temple before. This is amazing. We are building the house of God. And they were fired up. But the older Christians, well, I remember the other house. I remember Solomon's temple. And they were not so fired up because they compared Solomon's temple to the current temple that was being built. You with me on that? Isn't it true that comparison always leads to discouragement? You know, in some ways, this is understandable. Solomon's temple was said to literally be, literally be baptized in gold. And when I mean baptized in gold, I mean baptized in gold. I looked it up, and if you were to take all the gold that Solomon used to build his temple... In modern-day value, it would be $195 billion worth of gold. I mean, would that fire you up? Amen. That, that's, that's just the gold alone. In silver, silver was $22 billion worth of silver. This is, this is what decorated the temple of Solomon. And here they are building Zerubbabel's temple with sticks and stones. And all the young guys are like, wow, this is awesome. And all the old guys are but where's the gold? Where's the silver? This doesn't look anything like Solomon's temple. And they compared it to the old temple, thus they got discouraged. You know, I, I'll never forget, uh, several years back, I was in Manila, and I had a chance to, to meet with Kip, who leads our, our movement. And I was, I was discouraged. And I wanted to talk to him because I had heard a sermon from the 1980s, from where in their old movement, a group of disciples planted the church here in Toronto, and in their first year, they baptized 100 people into Christ. Well, this was like 2018, 2019, and at that time, I think our church was like 20 people, and there was no baptisms happening. And so I was just looking at our church and looking at what happened in the past, and I'm going, what's the difference? Why is it so harder now than it was 40 years ago in the 80s. I mean, what's going on? Is it me? What, what's happening? So I, I sat down with Kip and I go, hey, bro, what is the difference? I heard this sermon. Why was it easier then compared to now? And I'll never forget the first words out of his mouth were, hey, turn your Bible to Ecclesiastes 7.10. And this is what Ecclesiastes 7.10 literally says. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. That's it for me. That was the end of our time together right there. I was like, wow, okay, I get it. But why is it not wise to ask such questions? Because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter how easy other people have it compared to you. It doesn't matter what other people's lifestyle looks like compared to you. It doesn't matter what situation other people have compared to you. You have to run your race, you have to carry your cross, and you have to stand before God alone on Judgment Day. And so, what does it matter what other people are doing? But I think this is what Satan wants us to do. 
He wants you to get you to compare yourself to everybody else and to get discouraged because something in your life is not as awesome as something in someone else's life. That, that's, that's the power of Facebook and Instagram. You with me on that? I mean, that's all it is, is you're looking at everybody else's lives and going, man, they have it so much better than me. Look at all these, look at the food that people are eating. Wow. I mean, this food is incredible. Wow, look at, look at the, how happy everybody looks. Of course, all those photos are edited, and you don't see all the, the outtakes that are thrown out, but you only see the happy pictures, and so you think that everybody's got it better than you. And we compare, and we get discouraged. You know, it can even happen inside the church. How come Javier gets to share in front of the church? I mean, this is like the third time he's shared. He's only been baptized for six months. I mean, when's it my turn to share in front of the church? Why can't I be a song leader? Now, if you have to ask yourself that question, I highly suggest recording yourself singing and then playing it back for yourself. Because there was a time where I asked myself the same question, and I listened to myself, and I go, okay, that's why. <laughs> that's why. It's very obvious. Well, why does Dylan got to be on staff? How come Dylan gets to be on staff? I mean, I got to be a disciple. He's got to be a disciple. But he gets to be full-time as a disciple. We compare, do we not? Why, why does so much attention go to the campus ministry? And we're in the mature singles or the marriage or the, the, the single professionals ministry, and, and all the interns are on the campuses. Why don't I get that kind of attention in our ministry? We can compare. Instead of us just being fired up about what God has given us and choosing to be righteous in our situation, we compare and we get discouraged. Galatians 6 verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Are we carrying our own load this morning? We don't need to compare. We don't need to look anywhere else. We just got to look at ourselves. What am I doing for the Lord? Am I really living a soda lifestyle for the Lord? See, we got to stop comparing ourselves. And I promise you, when you stop comparing your situation to other people's situation, and it's just start getting fired up that you're with God, I mean, you can't help but to be fired up. You want to be on that? Uh, we get focused on, oh, well, we got this, this person is so much more privileged than I am. Let me tell you something. If you're living in Canada, you are privileged. Not white privilege versus black. You're just privileged in Canada. You with me on that? And if you take a trip to a third world country, you'll realize how good you have it here in Canada. The second thing, the second thing that Satan uses to take us out is dilution. Turn over to Ezra chapter 4 verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build. Because like you, we're just like you. We seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, you have no part with us in the building a temple of our God. We alone will build it for the Lord. The God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. 
Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrated their plans during the reign of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Is that intense? I mean, here they are. They're just building the temple. They're fired up. I mean, they've got the foundation going. But, but now the surrounding nations are starting to take notice. And so they travel over to Joshua and Zerubbabel and go, man, it's really just incredible what you guys are doing. And we really want to be a part of that. But, but the Bible actually refers to them as the enemies of Israel. Isn't that how it is sometimes when you're out there sharing your faith? Man, you guys are, you guys are sharing your faith? Wow. Yeah, you know, in my church, we believe the same thing, that you should go out there and share your faith. And we have a group set up, and we talk about it all the time, but you guys are actually doing it. We're just like you. I mean, literally, there's a guy on TMU campus that we run into every once in a while who's just like that. He's like, man, we, we, do, we talk about this. Like, what, what, how are you guys doing what you're doing? It's incredible. It's like, all you've got to do is just do it. Just do it. It's not that hard. But we're just, we're just, we're the same. We're on the same team. No, no, no. You know, over and over in the scriptures, the Bible lays out that there are enemies of the cross. And although I think that we think of enemies as people that, like, uh, are, are, are obviously opposing us, that there can be enemies that are enemies of the cross that are even inside the church. In, in fact, not too long ago, there was a person that was posing as a brother that was literally anonymously sending messages to people in the church trying to portray himself as a sister who was sexually abused in the church. Of course, this didn't happen, but he was trying to convince new Christians that it was happening so that they would leave the church. And when we found out who it was, it was shocking because this particular person was in financial trouble, and Isaiah had gone over to his house and delivered him food, took care of his needs, loved up on him, and we would have never known. He was an enemy of the cross. And this is just a fact. There are enemies of the cross, and there will always be enemies of the cross. And right here, they just wanted to take part in the building. And I appreciate the radicality of Joshua and Zerubbabel. They go, no, 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 you will have no part. In the building. You see, they understood that there needed to be a sold-out base of disciples in order to build the house of the Lord. You, you ever drink Kool-Aid that's got too much water? It's just the nastiest thing there is. It's just nasty. It's better to drink water than a little bit of Kool-Aid mixed with too much water. I mean, when somebody's in charge of making the Kool-Aid and they put too much water in that thing and they don't put enough Kool-Aid in that, I mean, it's just nasty. What's wrong with you, dude? Did you taste it? It just becomes so diluted down that it loses its potency. And I think this is what Satan tries to do with the church. He tries to dilute the commitment down by creating uncommitment in the church. And if we tolerate it, it dilutes the culture of the church down, and the church can no longer be potent in building the house of the Lord. Go to Revelation 3. Revelation 3. 
You know, oftentimes we, we avoid this scripture because one of the most prevalent false doctrines in society today is, is used or is, is stems from this scripture. And so I think sometimes as disciples, we, we kind of just stay away from the scripture. And therefore, we miss what it's actually saying. In Revelation 3 and verse 14, it says, To the angel of the church in Odyssey, you write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. Uh-oh. That you are neither cold nor hot. You're neither water nor cooling. You're somewhere in the middle. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You know, the Bible teaches right here that when something becomes lukewarm, and I think this is the part that we miss, the spirit literally leaves the building. It leaves the church. And, and this is what Satan wants to do. Dilute the commitment so it creates lukewarmness in the church. Therefore, God's spirit leaves the building, and the church can no longer be effective. Now, never forget, years ago, in San Diego, I got a chance to meet with another church leader. And we had been really just working hard in San Diego trying to get our church going. And, and there was another guy who believed some of the same doctrine as, as us, but did not want to call his church to commitment. And so we sat down together, and he goes, well, how are things going? And we, we started making some small talk. And after a little while, I go, well, how's your church doing? He goes, you know, Evan, I'll be the first to tell you, there, there's a lot of problems in my church. I go, amen. There's a lot of problems in my church, too. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about how much problems there are in the church. We know that we're sinful people. We're in part of a sinful group of people. Of course, there's going to be sin in the church. The question is, what are you doing about it to address it? And I'll never forget what he says. He goes, you know, Evan, you're, you're young now, and you've got a young family, and so you might not understand this. But when your kids get older and they get into their teenage years, you don't just kick them out of the house because they're rebellious. You, you wait, and then over time, your, your kids will come back around. I go, well, in all respect, sir, I don't think you understand. You see, different than your physical family, what makes us God's family is that we are committed to the standards of the Bible. And so when you stop being committed to the scriptures and stop being committed to obeying the Bible, then you're no longer a part of the family of God. So it's not that you're not kicking your own family members out. They're not your family. You know, lately, it's been fun, but I've been uh, getting into watching basketball games with my son, Chase. <clears throat> and let's just say that the guava doesn't fall too far from the tree. Chase really loves basketball, and he really loves LeBron, and he really loves the Lakers because he really loves LeBron. Amen. And the Lakers have been making a big turnaround in the season, and so we've been having fun watching them kind of swing back into the playoffs and, and getting back on track. And it's funny, as I was sitting there watching a game with my son, I mean, both of us were fired up, we're cheering for our team, and it occurred to me, I'm like, oh, wow, I have nothing to do with this game. I mean, they're the ones that are playing. They're the ones that have spent years training for this. They're the ones that are talented and the professionals. They're the ones that are on the court. And here I am in my living room eating potato chips, watching them play the game, but I feel like I'm a part of it. You with me on that? 
I mean, it's amazing how it works when you watch sports. You cannot be playing. You could have never played the sport. And somehow you feel like when your team loses, you lose. You feel like when your team wins, you win. You with me on that? We have nothing to do with it. We have nothing to do with it. That's the difference between a fan and a player. And I think sometimes we can become fans of the kingdom of God. Well, we love it. Well, great job, Dylan. Great job, Will. Way to go. And we feel like we're a part of it. But we're actually not on the court making things happen. And that's what Satan wants. He wants to discourage and he wants to dilute the commitment of God's kingdom. You with me on that? The third thing God or Satan does is he closes doors. Go to Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. You guys with me here? Ezra chapter 6, or 4, verse 6. Also in front of the throne, oh, I'm in Revelation. Let me go back. That's a good one, too. In Ezra 4, verse 6, it says, At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they launched an accusation. These are, these are the so-called wannabe builders. They launched an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, a bunch of other guys. This letter was written in Aramaic script in the, the Aramaic language. Rahab, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, king, and follows. Rahab, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, and administrators over the people of Persia, Uruk, Babylon, and so on. Verse 11. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in the Tran-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that this city is built and its walls are restored. No more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that the search may be made in the archives for your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is rebellious, troublesome. And isn't that what they say about us as disciples? A place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We informed, informed the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you'll be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. I mean, these were the so-called builder wannabes. We're not your enemies. We're your friends. As soon as they're not allowed to build, they start tattling on the people. To King Artaxerxes, hey, Artaxerxes, do you know what you've done by allowing these guys to build a temple here? These guys have a long history of sedition. They're not going to pay you any taxes. You're going to get nothing from these people if you allow them to keep on building. Verse 17. The king sent this reply to Rahab, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of the associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated into my presence. I issued an order and search will be made. And it, must, it was found that the city does have a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has a, had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates uh, trans and taxes, tributes, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that the city will no longer be built until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of Artaxerxes was read to Rahim, the Shimshai, the secretary, and the associates, they went immediately to the Jews of Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop 
Thus the work in the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, what, a, what, a, what a bunch of tattlers. Here they go, and they convince Artaxerxes to oppose the building that was originally allowed by Persia. You know, I, I think that one of the things that we need to be grateful for is that we live in a country that allows us to preach the word of God. I mean, when's the last time you just stopped to think about that? I remember my wife and I was in, we're in India in 2016, and the preacher asked a congregation of about 200 people, how many of you guys have been beat up for your faith? And almost every single one of them raised their hand. You need to be grateful that we live in a country that allows us to preach the word of God. <clears throat> you know, sadly, I was talking to Jay Shelbrack, who oversees the Eurasian churches now. And he, he told me the history of, of what happened in, in Eurasia. Initially, the, there was a church that we planted in Moscow uh, back, I think, in 2012 or 2013 or something like that. And shortly after the church was planted, and they were, they were hoping that they could build up Moscow and that Moscow could be the church that plants all the other Eurasian churches. But shortly after it got planted, the government made it illegal to preach the word. And so only Anna Sorotkin, who was the women's ministry leader at the time, got even, even got arrested for preaching outside and put in prison. And so it was very quickly decided that this was not going to be the place to center Christianity in Eurasia. And so then they moved the center of Christianity from Moscow, the center of, of our, our movement there in Moscow, to Kiev. Well, then we saw what happened about a year ago where Russian forces invaded Kiev and literally just destroyed the entire uh, 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 eastern side of Ukraine. And so, sadly, uh, the church in Kiev had to disperse, and there were some disciples that were left in Kiev, but most of them fled to Poland or to Lviv. And good thing is that when disciples scatter, they keep on preaching the word of God wherever they go. And so from that, we now have a church, a small church in Moscow. We have a church, a small church in Kiev. We have a small church in Lviv, and we have a small church in Warsaw, Poland. Amen? Well, then we got a group of disciples to go back to Moscow, but then Russia uh, started to issue their draft because they needed people to fight. And so they were making every man of a certain age join the, the, the fighting forces against Ukraine. Well, the disciples don't want to go to war. And so all the Russian men had to flee the country once again. And so they left some non-Russian guys there in Moscow because they don't have to go to battle. And the Russian guys fled to Belize, Georgia. And so now we have a church in Belize, Georgia. Amen. There are six disciples in Belize, and believe it or not, just last week, they had their first baptism. I, I think we've got to understand that sometimes Satan will close doors to shut down God's movement. He will close doors to shut down disciples. And I think we've got to have an appreciation for when there's an open door for effective work. And when there's an open door, we take it, we run through it, and we preach the word of God. You know, even last Women's Day, I had, I had to laugh because they literally had a closed door. They had booked the library for their event, had gone through months of planning, communicating with the library staff there, and 
For some reason, the day of Women's Day came, and they forgot to unlock the door. Now, thankfully, we have some sisters that weren't always disciples. And let's just say they got a pass. And so they were able to break into the room, open up the door, and we still made Women's Day happen. Amen? Let's go to our fourth point. If Satan can't get you with discouragement, dilution, or doors closing, he will get you with distraction. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. We find that the work of the Lord stopped right there in chapter 4, verse 25, or 24. And then we find in chapter 5, verse 1, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, the descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. And so it's amazing. The work stopped. What does God do? He doesn't open the door. Instead, he raises up prophets to preach the word of God. And so he raises up two guys, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai was the older prophet. And we know this because he describes the older temple in the book of Haggai. And so he must have been living at the time of the older temple. So he had been older than 70 years. Whereas Zechariah does not have any mention of the temple. And so more likely than, uh, or, or likely Zechariah was a younger prophet. And this is clearly evidence in the fact that he goes way longer than Haggai. Because younger people tend to be a lot more long-winded than the older guys. Amen? Let's go to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. You guys can find it. Haggai chapter 1 verse 3. Let's just see what Haggai preaches right here to the people. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? Well, this house remains a ruin. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Ever feel like that when you're trying to save some money? Where is it going? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin. Well, each of you is busy with your own house. You know, Haggai lays it out. He goes, you know, the problem right here is not that we're not building. He says people were always building. We're building something. The problem is that you're building your own house instead of building up God's house. And I love what he says. He goes, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. Isn't that all every worldly pursuit that's out there? Other than building up God's house? We think that all these things are going to lead to satisfaction, and we work so hard to achieve. We work so hard to get to the next stage of life. And then we get there expecting much, but it turns out to be little. 
Why? Because we're building our own house versus the house of the Lord. You know, I was, I was watching a documentary about uh, a Las Vegas casino uh, a couple years ago. And uh, I, I was just curious because, you know, I, I don't really understand the, the desire to gamble so much. You know what I'm saying? I mean, some people, like, they live for gambling. They earn a paycheck. First thing they do is go down to the casino, and boom, they're putting it all in the slot machines. And they lose every time, and they know they're going to lose. But for some reason, they just go back and back and back, and there's old people there that sit there, and they just do it over and over and over, cha-ching, cha-ching. I mean, just, it just, why are you doing this? And I learned, believe it or not, that there's a psychology to gambling. And all of the casinos have researched this to the hilt. I mean, everything in a casino is built based on human psychology. Even the noises that the machines make are to convince you that you're winning even when you're losing. Where's my money? Well, here's what they've learned. Here's what they've learned. The anticipation of winning brings just as much, not less than, not almost as much, just as much, equal to the level of satisfaction and fulfillment as actual winning. And so even though people don't win, the anticipation of winning, that's what people are addicted to. They're anticipating and anticipating and anticipating. And even though they expect much, and it turns out to be little, they run down the same path over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And isn't that life? So much people running down the same path, knowing that it leads to nothing but the anticipation of winning is just as fulfilling as actually getting there. And so they keep on doing it. You know, I think that even for some of us in the church, we have interests. <laughs> Who's your interest, bro? <laughs> Who's your interest, sis? Who do you like? Which one of the guys are you looking at? Woo! Let me talk about my interests. Let me talk about your interests. Let's just talk about the interests. But, but there's, there's some misconception. I think some of you guys are deceived. You don't have interests. You have desires. Now, here's the thing. James chapter 1 says desires lead to sin. Why? Because they're not being met by God. It's not about the other person. It's not, wow, this person is amazing. I mean, if, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna date somebody, that, that's gonna be the person that's gonna challenge me and get me to heaven. No, 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 it's about what can they do for me. I really like the attention they're giving me. Man, I could see this person's got a good job. I could see that they could provide for me. Okay, cool. No, no, that's not a that's not an interest. That's a desire, and your desire is gonna mess you up because you're gonna expect much. And it's going to turn out to be little. You know, I so appreciate those in the church that have forsaken worldly pursuits to build the house of God. I, I appreciate Kirk and Margie. 
They moved from California. Now, it's not like Kirk was sitting around like, I hope I get into ministry. Please let me be in the ministry. No. He was successfully doing an accounting business. He was, he was happy as could be in his situation. Other than the fact that he was not preaching and he felt called to preach. Once the opportunity came, no hesitation. Even if it meant taking his family in sunny old California and moving all the way to North York, Toronto to lead the York ministry, it was all about building the house of the Lord. I appreciate guys like Will Carluck, who had a successful job as a sales associate, but he didn't have any time to study the Bible with people. So he goes, although I'm making good money and although I'm advancing in my career, I'm not satisfied. I want to do more for the kingdom. He took a lesser paying job in a music studio that freed him up to go share his faith and study the Bible. And from there, he developed a passion to be in the ministry. You know what happened? God came knocking on his door. In January, we sat down with him. Turns out, I didn't even know this. Turns out, the day that we met with him and asked him to be full-time for the Lord, he was offered a big contract, a big deal professionally to continue on in his career as a music producer. But he goes, no way. I'm going to build up the house of the Lord. Uh, I appreciate Sarah Owusu. The Lord moved her from Ohio. She was born in Brampton. The Lord said, hey, you can't be hanging out here in the U.S. You need to go back home. So he revoked her visa, sent her back up here to Toronto, whether she liked it or not. And she got here, and she goes, I'm going to be about the work of the Lord. Now, for a while, for a while, she was living on all her savings that she had saved up. But let's just say over some time, you know, Toronto's expensive. The money started to dwindle. She goes, okay, i got to get a job. Well, she goes and she looks for a job that would give her the freedom to share her faith and study the Bible with people. Somehow, miraculously, God provides her with a part-time job that pays her full-time. I've never heard of such a thing, but she found it. And still, she's like, man, all I want to do is preach the word of God. Are you building yourself a home on earth or a a house or home in heaven? You know, as a result of the preaching, I'll close up pretty soon here. Ezra chapter 5, verse 2. In Ezra 5, verse 2, here's the response to the preaching. It says, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The door didn't open. The preachers preached. And the people responded. They went back to building the house of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 15. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Wow, the people repent. They start preaching. They start working. They start building the house. And then God changes the leadership of Persia to King Darius. 
Now, what, what, what is special about King Darius? Well, who was one of his best friends in Babylon? Daniel. Daniel's prayer changed Darius's heart. Darius, find, Darius finds out what is going on there in Jerusalem, and he allows them to get back to building the house of the Lord. You know, I think we need to understand the doors are never going to open unless you just preach nevertheless. It doesn't matter if the doors close. It doesn't matter if the doors open. We're just going to preach the word of God. We're going to build the house, and we're going to let God open the doors when he decides to open the doors. But we cannot let anything or anyone stop us from preaching the word of God. The last thing that Satan uses to stop the building is discontentment. We'll close in Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 1. You know, at this point, the building has, has happened. The temple is built in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, had not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with those detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. And everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. The last thing that Satan does to try to stop the building is gives us discontentment. We become discontented as disciples. We become unhappy with building. And we start looking towards the world. We start looking at other things. And we start wanting and desiring those things in our lives. In this case, it was marrying people that were unspiritual. It's the Old Testament equivalent of marrying non-Christians or marrying non-disciples. And as they intermarried with these unspiritual people, then all of a sudden the commitment started to wane and people's hearts started to drift. And Ezra found out about it and he was so ticked off. I mean, he just hulked his shirt, tore his shirt, tore his coat, and then he started pulling the hair out of his head and his beard. No, that is not what happened to me. You know, as we close, why did the people pursue this? Why did the people so quickly abandon the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 1. I think it makes it very clear. In verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. You go, what's the 20th year there? Chapter 2, verse 1, refers to it as the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the second rule of Artaxerxes, which is actually 516 B.C., 20 years after the temple was rebuilt. Or, or excuse me. 466 BC, 50 years after the temple was rebuilt. It says, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some of the other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and about, the Jerusalem, about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. You see, they finished the temple in roughly around 516 BC, but for 50 years, nobody built the walls. Why did they start longing for other things? Why did they start looking to foreign wives? Why did they start drifting from the Lord? Because they stopped building. 
And when you stop building, your heart will always start drifting. And so this morning, as we consider these scriptures, i got to ask, what are you building? You know, I, I am so grateful to be a part of a church that does not give in to discouragement, that stands up for God's standard and does not allow Satan to dilute us, that doesn't care if the doors close. It doesn't matter if it's COVID, government, or anything else. We're going to commit ourselves to preaching the Word of God. We're not going to allow ourselves to get distracted. We're not going to allow ourselves to pursue worldly things or even be discontented with God's kingdom. We are God's church. We are God's building. And we are God's builders. And I don't know about you, but I'm building me a home, and to God be all the glory.